Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Well, greetings, Imagination Connoisseurs. Once again, it is I, your Duke of Dope Discourse, your Master of Fun and Wonder, your Viceroy of Verisimilitude, your Sommelier of Cinema and Sci-Fi, your Archbishop of Banterbury, your Chancellor of Cheerfulness, your Pharaoh of Physical Media, your Evangelist of the Imagination, and your Existential Mr. Rogers, Robert Meyer Burnett, and I am, of course, Robcasting it, you, you Imagination Connoisseurs, you Imagination Connoisseurs, you members of this, the Post-Geek Singularity Community, this is Rob Observations, episode number 611, my God, you know, I I, I know, I every day I say the same thing, I can't believe how many episodes there's been, but really, I can't believe how many episodes, I can't believe you're still watching, there's more people every day, I mean, I, I mean my God, uh, I, I that the last show I did I I wasn't on yesterday I apologize for that but the last show I did on on Zack Snyder's the Snyder Cut and uh, delving into why is it now a movie again instead of four hour long episodes boy that caused quite the stir and I want to thank everybody it's nice to hear uh, from all of you I've I've received offers I've received all kinds of of things who who knew who knew I know there's a lot of interest in this and. And ultimately, a lot of people congratulated me and said, "Oh, thank you for coming, coming back to our side." But lest I just want to, I just want to say, I was poo-pooing the Snyder Cut for a long time, and I was saying it wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I think that why I was saying it wasn't going to happen sort of was bared out in what happened uh, subsequent to well, when AT and T took over and there was somebody to pay for it now, and all the things that have gone down still. It is going to always be an interesting story in the annals of entertainment history when that book is written. I don't know when that book's... Well, there's been a lot of books about entertainment history written, but I guess about this time in entertainment history, the streaming wars, this will definitely be a chapter in that. Very, very interesting uh, about the balance of power shifting, studio bosses looking for relevance, filmmakers who were hired to do a job and they continue to do the job they're three movies in and they get fucked with by their studio that they've it's just a very interesting story i've appreciated the feedback but it really got me thinking and uh, about a lot of things uh like i always do and there's been a lot of talk about nostalgia and fan service and how 
what does it mean to be a critical thinker? And, and a lot of people come after me uh, about certain things and about how I'm wearing nostalgia glasses or whatever it is they want to say. And there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a comment left. There was a comment left on um, 604, episode 604 of this show when I was talking about what happens when our franchises reach middle age as we reach middle age. And there was somebody that wrote a comment. Um, Christopher uh, Zilstra wrote this comment. after uh, His first comment was talking about, he made a comment about, oh, how Steve Bannon has fallen so far. Because a lot of people, when I'm sporting a, a beard, think I look like Steve Bannon. Maybe so. But it wasn't meant as a term of endearment. Anyway, so Christopher Zilstra writes... This is in the comments on YouTube. Star Trek Original and Prime are famous for their political humanitarian scripting. New Trek feels inorganic to you because you have passed middle age and the show is targeted at 18 to 35-year-olds. TV execs are no more and no less cynical than other periods. Lastly, you actually have no clue what the writers are like but are making a generalized assumption that has become a rote response by cranky people is unquestioned by the masses and otherwise unlikely to be challenged. Look, nobody owes you Star Trek as you'd rather have it, and you should be grateful you had such a long run. Personally, my headcanon is that there are only three Star Wars movies, and I don't care that Disney has screwed it up. They're no worse than Lucas's own prequels. If you don't put so much importance on lowbrow entertainment, then you won't be put out by it when it doesn't push your nostalgia buttons anymore. Take up reading the classics and stop trying to intellectualize a topic that really should be above grown men anyway. Yes, really. So that's typical of, of many comments that I receive from people that wonder... You know, when I when I when I refer to myself as an aging man child, uh, or or the Duke of Dope Discourse, or the Viceroy of Verisimilitude, I would hope that the in, and by the way these these are all um, I call myself an aging man child, but all the other nicknames were bestowed upon me by viewers or friends, and I would think that by using them at the beginning of this show, I'm trying to say, hey, look, I don't take myself too seriously, and we should be having fun. Uh, that's why I use those nicknames, so you can either think I'm a douche canoe, or at least be amused, or bemused, or maybe disgusted, I don't know, depending if you tune in, tune in and watch this show. It's my way of saying, look, we're having a good time here, I don't take myself seriously, that seriously, even though I do put a lot of time and effort and thought into this show. But it really, it, it gets me thinking, along with uh, all these these infinitely <laughs> uh, there's just an infinite string of videos about Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm and Dave Filoni and 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 Luke Skywalker showing up and all of these things and everybody's throwing about nostalgia and and uh, oh you should grow up and like this viewer said read the classics what makes him think I haven't read the classics um, and and when he says classics am I supposed to read you know Proust Am I supposed to read A Farewell to Arms? Am I supposed to read Gilgamesh? Am I supposed to read Greek mythology? Do I go back and read Poetics? I mean, what do you mean by that, first of all? And, you know, in a hundred years, the things that we're talking about on these shows would be considered classics as, oh, what does it mean? 
What does classics mean? Is Shakespeare considered classics or or not? Because Shakespeare's plays were written for the masses. I do think Shakespeare's plays are essential reading. I think if you want to be a storyteller, looking at Shakespeare's stories is pretty essential. I also think that reading the Bible is pretty essential if you want to be a storyteller. I think a lot of the great canonical works of the literature of the Western, well, Western civilization, actually, well, maybe I should say Western civilization, but are steeped and a lot of them are derived from the Bible. And I think if anybody wants to be a student of storytelling, whether you believe in scripture or not, I've said that on the show before, the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, are foundational pieces of literature to understand not just storytelling in in, in the West, but all storytelling. Uh, I mean, so many of our stories are, have been influenced by the Bible in one way, shape, or form. So I think anybody who is interested in any kind of storytelling should read scripture. And as I said, whether you believe it or not, the story of Job, for instance, which I've talked about a lot on the show, is a valuable story. Hell, you can, you can, it's in the public domain. <laughs> if you want, you can, you can adapt Job to your heart's content. Uh, and I think that story can always be reworked and it's always interesting. But anyway, this, this whole idea about how, you know, that somehow all of us fans, especially as aging middle-aged fans with one foot in their grave, like myself, are somehow steeped in nostalgia that we see things uh, the way we saw them when we were children. We want to return to that simpler time. And I've always thought that's kind of bunk. Maybe it's true for some people, but for me, um, the one thing that I've loved about, for instance, my beloved franchise of Star Trek is that, I've said this a million times before, but I'm going to say it again right now, Star Trek grew and evolved and changed. Uh, the characters that I love as a child, that I loved as a child, the original series characters, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Sulu, Uhura, Chekhov, those characters grew up. As a matter of fact, when they made the transition from the television screen 10 years later to the movie screen, the characters were reaching middle age and all of those things were incorporated into the story. So to grow up for myself to be a child and love Captain Kirk I also, as I became a teenager and was growing up myself, was watching my beloved heroic characters get old. And over the course of the classic movie series from 1979 to 1991, Star Trek The Motion Picture through Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, our characters were grappling with getting old, and that was one of the themes of all six of those films. So I think that's something that was very, very interesting uh, for me in terms of how Star Trek worked. And I like that. I like the fact that we saw stories that were 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 about people getting older cuz we're all getting older. I don't I don't just want to go back and watch Star Trek episodes that I watched when I was 5 years old. But what I'm interested in, what I'm most interested in, when people say that I'm criticizing Star Trek or Doctor Who or Star Wars or uh that that somehow I want it to be turned back into the way that it was when I was a kid. And nothing could be further from the truth. As with everything, as with everything, I want it to be good. I want it to be good. 
I want the stories that I'm consuming, and especially the stories that I have the most interest in consuming, such as, obviously, Star Trek, I want Star Trek to be good. The idea of a Picard series was wildly exciting. And you're thinking, I was thinking to myself, okay, for the most part, we saw Jean-Luc Picard for seven years on TV and through, through four feature films. And I was thinking, we haven't seen sort of the Star Trek II version or even the motion picture version of, of, of Picard. And I was very, very curious about that. Now, unfortunately, what we ended up getting in Star Trek Picard was more about modern television or what people think modern television is supposed to be. And that came first. And looking back at the character of Jean-Luc Picard as established in, they didn't look at, they weren't looking at Star Trek The Next Generation or even The Next Generation movies to get a bead on where Picard was. They were looking at other things. They were looking at stuff like, well, Logan. Logan was obviously a big touchstone for Patrick Stewart, so they looked there. And why I I felt I was so let down by the Picard series is, one, it wasn't really about Picard. I mean, you could say, okay, his character goes on a journey, but the story wasn't about him. It was all this external stuff that was going on, all of this, that a lot of it was underdeveloped and didn't really go anywhere, and that external stuff was all about today and what what the the writers wanted to address that they were interested in whether or not it worked for the character of Jean-Luc Picard or the milieu of Star Trek itself was sort of secondary. And that was, it, it, it wasn't, in my mind, I mean, I, I think objectively, it wasn't very good. They had a lot of money, they had a lot of time, they had Patrick Stewart who was game, and they told a story that was an amalgamation of a bunch of other things. And it always comes down to, at the end of the day, for me, is this a good story, and was this story well told? And is it true if you're working in the Star Trek, Star Trek is a genre unto itself, really, and if you're working, if you're making Star Trek, are you making good Star Trek, or are you making bad Star Trek? And the thing is, I'm not looking for Star Trek that feels or even looks like the Star Trek looked or felt when I was a kid. I want modern Star Trek. I want cutting-edge storytelling. But I want it to be good. I want the characterizations to be good. That's what I'm really interested in. Now, I pulled a bunch of articles for this show that I want to I want to share bits and pieces of. Um, I didn't really bring them all up, so you'll have to bear with me on some of these. Um, this this article was written by Jessica Hate Angelo. Jessica Hate Angelo, and it was written on November 9th, 2020, and it was at popmatters.com. And this article. Five Negative Effects of Fandom Nostalgia and How to Overcome Them. And her article starts, If you spent money on merchandise promoting your favorite sports team, logged hours discussing the summer blockbuster remake of a movie you and several other people on the same internet message boards like when you were kids, or written a fan fiction story because what happened to your uh, one true pairing, a.k.a. your preferred fictional character hookup scenario, canonically, Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. 
Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It just wasn't acceptable to you, then you've probably been on some level a member of fandom. In the olden days, a.k.a. before the internet became a feature in most households, fans of Star Trek would share handmade zines at regional conventions, themselves predecessors for the behemoth events like Comic-Con. The reach of those zines was much smaller than the potential audience for a piece of writing or visual art today on, say, Tumblr, but the role of the content produced for them had a similar bent. That is, they allowed fans to share theories with one another and even to focus on aspects of the TV series. For instance, the relationship, such that it was, between Kirk and Spock that may have been incidental or tangential to the creators. Nowadays, fandom is a gigantic, uncloseted, and unfortunately argumentative. Uh, Warring factions are embittered by lack of or an overabundance of representation of specific groups, anxiety over adaptations of previous canon into a new one, and even the nature of development with regards to brand new canon. Probably, however, what infuses modern fandom with the bulk of its toxicity is related to a sense of nostalgia come entitlement. While nostalgia itself involves a wistfulness for the past, the Oxford English Dictionary specifically describes the phenomenon as sentimental longing. University of Southampton 2017, implying a focus on things an individual remembers as being good or pleasurable, often for intimate or personal reasons, the effects of nostalgia when several individuals' longings meet and clash can be anything but nice. By being aware of the ways nostalgia might come into play, it can help to make one's fandom experience a productive and positive one. Um, Number one, she says... Nostalgia can blind fans to a well-loved fandom's flaws. A mere two decades ago, nostalgia was treated as a disorder, a mental affliction in which sufferers, and they do suffer, the term is coined from the Greek nostos, meaning homecoming, 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 and algos, or pain, have a predilection for the past, characterized in 1688 by Swiss physician Johannes Hoffer, by being manic with longing and melancholy for a specific object or place. Its renaissance and retooling did not occur until 1999, when a Greek doctor, Constantine uh, Siddiq, oh man, this is a tough one, Constantine Siddiquides, felt that a diagnosis of nostalgia by a colleague mischaracterized a son longing for the time he spent as a student at the University of North Carolina, uh, and that was Sidicides was simply depressed. More correctly, Sidicides eventually surmised his longing was an affirmation that his life had roots and continuity. It made me feel good about myself and my relationships. It provided a texture to my life and gave me the strength to move forward. Today, nostalgia has a good reputation. Keying the term into Google brings up an online shop, 
dedicated to selling old-fashioned looking electronics, including popcorn poppers and cotton candy makers. Likewise, the self-proclaimed nostalgia critic at channelawesome.com and websites like the aptly named the nostalgiamachine.com traffic in pontificating on the past, ostensibly in search of a sweet spot wherein nostalgia helps to maintain one's forward-moving lifestyle rather than causing them to lapse into bittersweet emotion or discontinuity. And then this article goes on, and I'm going to put this in the live, live chat. Number two, wistful fandom gatekeepers may be hostile to newcomers. Sadikides eventually created a seven-question battery called the Southampton Nostalgia Scale, which aims to determine via a self-reported survey how much and how often nostalgia may affect one's life. On the University of Southampton website, housing a PDF copy of the entire survey, it is noted that nostalgia has the potential to offer those who practice it, consciously or otherwise, a stronger sense of belongingness, affiliation, or uh, sociality. Of course, the previously acknowledged aspects of nostalgia can also cause the opposite to occur. A Star Wars fan myself, I picked up a copy of Tony Pacetti's 2010 memoir, My Best Friend is a Wookiee, nearly as soon as it was published. The book has a reputation for being an endearing look into the rapidly socially acceptable zeitgeist that was being a nerd or geek or the post-geek singularity, words that, like nostalgia, once came with a significantly more social flack than they do currently. A large portion of his memoirs is Pacetti establishing himself as a dyed-in-the-wool Star Wars fan, his salvation, even though hum even through humiliation at the hands of ele elementary school bu bullies, accidentally urinating in his pants at school, and acne. Alas, what struck me as disappointing was Pacetti's embittered gatekeeping, a term that in fandom refers to one who metaphorically discourages people from accessing fandom materials or spaces under the notion that the person in question is not an authentic enough fan. Even more damning for a fangirl is how gender-based Pacetti's uh, own gatekeeping seems to be. Quote, Suddenly the popular girls were swooning over the dashing Han Solo, and guys with their hormones about to go supernova were drooling over Princess Leia's metal slave bikini like it was something new. It wasn't. I've been drooling over it for years. This was my galaxy, damn it, and I didn't want the cool kids to have any fun in it. They'd hogged everything else, and now they were peeking into my little world? No, they weren't just peeking. They were staking their claims, and suddenly they all thought they were experts on the galaxy I'd spent countless hours ensconcing myself in. Uh, Pasiti uh, uh, goes on the same chapter to describe an interaction with horrors, a female classmate who calls him out regarding an incorrect fact on a poster he has made about Star Wars ships. For what it's worth, her assessment ends up being incorrect. Pasiti describes feeling angry enough to fantasize about grabbing her by the ponytail and shaking the life out of her. The passage ends with Pasetti contenting himself with the notion that when he dies, he can be eulogized with the statement that he knew more about Star Wars than some stupid girl who only started liking it way after he did. Uh, this is actually a pretty good, it goes to number three is nostalgia creates unyielding and unrealistic expectations for new canon. Four, nostalgic fans can focus unnecessarily unnecessary animosity on fandom creators. And five, nostalgia can lead to unwarranted fan entitlement. So it's everything you might, you know, expect from our article like this. Uh, but a lot of it has good points to make and things like that. And I'm going to put this in the live chat. So check that out. Um, there you go. Now, there was another thing that I, I thought was kind of uh, worth sharing, and uh, <laughs> this, this is definitely uh, 
well, it's it's um, it's amusing, and it's a it's a uh, I guess a monograph. I haven't actually read it. I just found it, but I really want to read it, and it's about Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, and it is a um, it's an article. Bitches ain't gonna hunt no ghosts. Totemic nostalgia, toxic fandom, and the Ghostbusters platonic. And um, uh, William Proctor put this out, and from the UK in Bourne's, uh, Bournemouth University in the United Kingdom, and it's a paper. And uh, in, the abstract is, in March 2016, the trailer for Paul Feig's Ghostbusters reboot debuted online and suffered the unfortunate accolade of being the most disliked trailer in YouTube history. Popular news media, including professional, pro-am, and amateur commentators, picked up on the resulting online kerfuffle, uh, kerfuffle as clear indication that there is something rotten in the state of fandom. Feig himself frequently turned to the echo chamber of social media to denounce fans as some of the biggest assholes I've ever met in my life, addressing fans that singled out the reboot as ruining my childhood. Feig poured fuel on the fire by criticizing such a perspective as merely the product of some whacked-out teenager overdramatic, pathological, and perhaps more pointedly, toxic. In so doing, Feig, and by extension, the cast of his Ghostbusters reboot, replicated and reactivated traditional stereotypes of the fanboy living in his mother's basement and obsessing over trivial entertainment. This article takes the claims of childhood ruination seriously to examine what is at stake for fans of the original Ghostbusters film. Despite the organs of online media heavily criticizing fanboys as misogynistic relics and sexist heathens, often in aggressive ways, I argue that fans' effective nostalgic attachment to the first Ghostbusters film, the primary cinematic text, forms a crucial component of fans' self-narratives and tra trajectories of the self. By drawing an empirical work on nostalgic narratives conducted in the psychology field, I argue that it is not simply toxicity that drives these fans to defend the fan object from being colonized by an invading text. I love that. But rather, what I'm terming as totemic nostalgia, a form of protectionism centered on an effective relationship with the text usually forged in early childhood, threats to the Ghostbusters totemic object then can thus be felt as threats to these fans' self-narratives. This is actually a fascinating piece. And uh, I wanted to put this in the live check, live check, the live chat. So if any of you want to check it out, you should. So there's a lot of really interesting information. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. But I did it anyway. I apologize. There's a lot of really interesting things out there when you start looking into fandom and, and all of that. But I, I think it's something else. And again, it's more simplistic. You know, I am not particularly married to Ghostbusters. I saw it when it first came out. I really liked Ghostbusters a great deal. But when, um, when uh, I saw the remake... I, I didn't particularly like it very much because I don't think it captured what made the first... There's a lot of people... I don't have a problem, personally, whether there's female protagonists in a story, male protagonists in a story. I don't care. I just want the story to be good. Tell me a good story. I don't I don't watch The Handmaid's Tale because... It, I, I, I watch it because it's good. I don't watch it... You know, I, I, I don't think, oh... Uh, it's it's the central protagonist is a female, so I'm not going to watch. I've never I've never thought that once in my life, and I don't I don't think a lot of people actually do think that. 
I think what people want is great narratives. They want great stories that are well told. That's all anybody has ever wanted. And this idea that when I bang on about Star Trek, uh, look, I think bad storytelling, bad storytelling in any form, is actually harmful to people. I do. Now, that might be people are, come on, Rob, really? Well, if you think about it, great stories are inspirational. They stick with you. They become part of your own narrative. There are things in stories that you identify with. There's the pain that characters go through might relate to a pain that you've had in your own life, whether it was something that happened to you, perhaps the loss of a loved one, the loss of a pet, disappointment you felt, that when you're seeing a story and something that you recognize from your own life is reiterated in that story, you as a human being realize that your pain is not just your own, that other people understand that. And when that pain is is depicted in a way that is realistic and it feels or appears genuine, I think that can be helpful and cathartic to the person experiencing that story, whether it's a novel, whether it's a comic book, whether it's a video game, a movie, a TV show, wherever it is you're consuming stories, if there's something that you recognize as truth in those stories because they are well told, that can actually be very, very helpful. And when I see something like, say, Star Trek that's been important in my life, and when I see it's not that Star Trek uh, has to be the way it was uh, the way it was when I was a kid, no, but I, I feel that it should have the same kind of of resonating storytelling that Star Trek did. The 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 accoutrements and the, the 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 way it looks and everything is not as important as the stories that are actually being told. And what I've seen and what's been happening to a lot of our uh, these narratives that we've enjoyed is the stories are no longer true to the things or, or, or to what it was in the first place that the storytellers, the modern storytellers, are changing the narratives into something that is fashionable now, that has more to say about the storytellers themselves, I think, than the stories that they're trying to tell. And I think that's what everybody's kind of responding to. Uh, You know, was it a good idea to flip the script and make all the Ghostbusters female? I don't think it was necessarily a good idea or a bad idea. I just don't think that they incorporated... The female, when you're going to do that, I, 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 the characters in that Paul Feig version, I didn't believe them. You know, when you first meet uh, Venkman, you first meet the the Ghostbusters, Spangler, and you meet uh, uh, all of all of the the characters in the original. As far as it goes, you believe them. I mean, Bill Murray's sort of bemused. He's hustling. He's using his his parapsychology to hustle hot chicks. I mean. And he he's very irreverent, and he's a character that you you kind of believe in, and you believe his friends who really are true believers, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. I mean, their deadpan deliveries and how they're so genuine in their belief in all. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly—it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All of this supernatural stuff. And not only that, they know all about it. They've read all the literature. They know all the, the tomes, the books. All of that really worked together. And it was it was played relatively straight. And then you allowed the supernatural elements of it all to sort of take over and carry the plot. But these guys still remain sort of the they're the they're the straight men even even bill murray they're, they're the straight men to the state puff marshmallow man or the ghostly librarian or whatever but i think the real problem with the ghostbusters the remake paul feig's remake of ghostbusters is that you don't believe those women characters i don't believe them they were written as movie characters and they're not great movie characters they don't work they're already too goofy, so there's no counterpoint to all the shenanigans that happens, and it becomes just kind of a mess, like a, a melted wax candle. It's all ugh, kind of on the table, and um, it, it it doesn't it doesn't entirely work. And and even with modern Star Trek, I feel the same is true. I feel the the stories and the way they depict things. It's clear to me that creators of modern Star Trek look. I bang on about the turbo shafts and the elevators inside the Discovery. Well, if your if your showrunners, the people making the show, can't be bothered to create a credible ship, and they've already got over fifty years to look back on and say, "Oh, this is what it's supposed to be," or how about how about a real ship? Does a real ship, other than say an aircraft carrier or a cargo ship, maybe a um, oil tanker, is there a lot of empty space to allow lots of travel inside of that ship? No, and and when you see things like that. It ruins the credibility of everything they're trying to do. And I think a lot of what people are responding to is not so much nostalgia as it is the uh, the inauthentic storytelling that's going on. Now, I understand what they're calling gatekeeping in these articles. When you've been a fan of something for a long time and you've been ostracized perhaps by being a fan or people made fun of you, now we live in the post-geek singularity where everybody's a fan – I do understand that resentment, um, and I do understand. I mean, I've taken a lot of this, a lot of these things seriously for a long period of time. So, if I meet somebody, I've learned long ago that it doesn't bother me. Anybody who has any level of fandom is okay, and I don't expect somebody. I'm not going to sit there and question somebody's fandom because I understand and I've learned long ago that people have varying degrees of fandom. And when you say, oh, yeah, I'm a fan of that stuff, that means they'll sit down after dinner and if they flip and catch Star Trek or something, they'll watch it. But I don't expect people to know the episode titles or even even internalize it the way I do because why should you? Every person's unique and their fandom is with themselves and whomever else. But now when we live in a world where everything has gone mainstream and all of our little fandoms are no longer our own, they're everybody's, they're everywhere, I understand the idea that it you can be a little resentful for all this because you feel like, well, I need a little something, you know, llama, llama, I need some for uh, the effort, you know, achieve total consciousness, which is nice. But you know what I mean, is that, is that people, there is sort of a thing, it's, it's something like, I've been studying Star Trek, studying it like 
reading books about it and 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 nonfiction books and internalizing these things and about all of this and and when I come across well the kind of when I come across the kind of writing for modern Star Trek and I I feel that it's subpar that's that's not just a lifetime of studying Star Trek it's a lifetime of studying stories and I I feel that when I read the interviews with the writers and things like that I feel a lot of it is just it's just I I I I I don't feel that that I feel that there are people that are probably better equipped to write these kinds of stories than the ones that we're getting and they're being paid a lot of money and and I'm paying money to watch these stories so that's what I tend to get upset about um but you know I, I it's it's different for everybody now here's a New York Times article that I wanted to uh talk about here and I'm going to uh, let me let me call it up for you, which I thought was pretty interesting because uh, in terms of what is nostalgia, um, I thought this was a, a definitely a, a, an interesting article to delve into. And this was in the New York Times. And uh, let's see. Oh, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to call it up, but for what? Well, you know what? I'll just I'll just put it right here. I'll just I'll give it its own its own page. How about that? So you can see it and we can uh, delve into this one together. Um, So just give me a moment here and I will call it up because I thought this was a pretty good article to a good article to share. And again, this article is in the uh, New York Times. And for whatever reason, it's I've got too many things open. So it's not. I'm just going to read into it. So forget that. Forget me trying to call this article up live. I'm just going to read it. I won't read all of it. I'll put most of it. You know what? I'll put it in the live chat. and You can, you can follow along with me right now. And I'll put it here into the live chat. So there you go. Check it out. So I thought this was cool. This article in the New York Times uh, is called, What is Nostalgia Good For? Quite a Bit, Research Shows. And it was written by John Tierney on July 8th, 2013. See, I, I go back. I look for these things. Southampton, England. And this, this article refers back to our gentleman who was quoted before. Not long after moving to the University of Southampton, Constantine Sidikides had lunch with a colleague in the psychology department and described some unusual symptoms he'd been feeling. A few times a week, he was suddenly hit with nostalgia for his previous home at the University of North Carolina. Memories of old friends, Tar Heel basketball games, fried okra, the sweet smells of Autumn Hill and Chapel Hill, of Autumn and Chapel Hill. His colleague, a clinical psychologist, made an immediate diagnosis. He must be depressed. Why else live in the past? Nostalgia had been considered a disorder ever since the term was coined by a 17th century Swiss physician who attributed soldiers' mental and physical maladies to their longing to return home. Nostos in Greek and the accompanying pain, algos. But Sidikides didn't want to return to any home, not to his Chapel Hill, not to his native Greece, and he insisted to his lunch companion he wasn't in pain. I told him I did live my life forward, but sometimes I couldn't help thinking about the past, and it was rewarding, he says. Nostalgia made me feel that my life had roots and continuity. 
It made me feel good about myself and my relationships. It provided texture to my life and gave me strength to move forward. The colleague remained skeptical, but ultimately, Sadikides prevailed. That lunch in 1999 inspired him to pioneer a field that today includes dozens of researchers around the world using tools developed at his social psychology laboratory, or laboratory, including a questionnaire called the Southampton Nostalgia Scale. Now, this is a really cool uh, thing, and I'm going to put it in the live chat so you can, I guess you could administer it to yourself. So here you go. So check that out. That is the nostalgia scale. After a decade of study, nostalgia isn't what it used to be. It's looking a lot better. Nostalgia has been shown to counteract loneliness, boredom, and anxiety. It makes people more generous to strangers and more tolerant of outsiders. Couples feel closer and look happier when they're sharing nostalgic memories. On cold days or in cold rooms, people use nostalgia to literally feel warmer. Nostalgia does have its painful side. It's bittersweet. It's a bittersweet emotion, but the net effect is to make life seem more meaningful and death less frightening. When people speak wistfully of the past, they typically become more optimistic and inspired about the future. Nostalgia makes us a bit more human, Sidicides says. He considers the first great nostalgist to be Odysseus. Uh, an... <laughs> An itinerant who used memories of his family and home to get through hard times. But Dr. Sadikides emphasizes that nostalgia is not the same as homesickness. It's not just for those away from home, and it's not a sickness despite its historical reputation. Nostalgia was originally described as a neurological disease of essentially demonic cause. By Johannes Hoffer, the Swiss doctor who coined the term in 1988, military physicians speculated that its uh, prevalence uh, among Swiss mercenaries abroad was due to earlier damage to the soldiers' eardrums and brain cells by the unremitting clanging of cowbells in the Alps. Uh, In the 19th and 20th centuries, nostalgia was variously classified as an immigrant psychosis, a form of melancholia, and a mentally repressive compulsive disorder, among other pathologies. But when Dr. Sidikides, Tim Wildshut, and other psychologists at Southampton began studying nostalgia, they found it to be as common around the world, including in children as young as seven, who look back fondly on birthdays and vacations. The defining features of nostalgia in England are also the defining features in Africa and South America, Dr. Wildschitz says. The topics are universal. Reminiscences about family and friends, members, holidays, weddings, songs, sunsets, lakes. The stories tend to feature the self as the protagonist, surrounded by close friends. Most people report experiencing nostalgia at least once a week, and nearly half experience it three or four times a week. These reported bouts are often touched off by negative events and feelings of loneliness, but people stay the, say that the nostalgia, nostalgizing, the nostalgizing, nostalgizing, blah, blah, I can, what? Researchers distinguish it from reminiscing, and it helps them feel better. To test these effects in the laboratory, researchers out Southampton induced negative moods by having people read about a deadly disaster and take a personality test that supposedly revealed them to be exceptionally lonely. Sure enough, the people depressed about the disaster victims or worried about being lonely became more likely to wax nostalgic. And the strategy worked. They subsequently felt less depressed and less lonely. Nostalgic stories aren't simple exercises in cheeriness, though. The memories aren't all happy, and even the joys are mixed with a wistful sense of loss. 
But on the whole, the positive elements greatly outnumber the negative elements, as the Southampton researchers found by methodically analyzing stories collected in the laboratory, as well as in a magazine named Nostalgia. Nostalgia stories often start badly with some kind of problem, but then they tend to end well thanks to help from someone close to you, Dr. Sidikides says. So you end up with a stronger feeling of belonging and affiliation, and you become more generous to others. A quick way to induce nostalgia is through music, which has become a favorite tool of researchers. In an experiment in the Netherlands, Ad J.J.M. Vinderhoitz of Tilburg University and colleagues found that listening to songs made people feel not only nostalgic, but also warmer physically. Well, this article goes on, and you can read it uh, in the chat. I put it in the live chat. But I would say that the same thing applies to all of our great franchises. A lot of these franchises, whether it's James Bond, Doctor Who, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, now Harry Potter for people, the newer, even Planet of the Apes, the reason these franchises have endured and they're they're able to be looked at again and again and again is not simply for new audiences, it's for all audiences. You know, this the person who wrote on my YouTube page at the beginning of this that I wrote or read about from the beginning of this chat was saying that that I have some nostalgia for some time that's long gone. That's why I still love Star Trek because it was steeped in my childhood. And I would say no. The thing that I love about Star Trek is as I have grown, it too has grown and changed and evolved. Star Trek The Next Generation was a different show than Star Trek The Original Series. And as I said, in Star Trek The Original Series, the characters were allowed to age going into middle age and that was incorporated into their storylines. The same was true of James Bond. Doctor Who gets to regenerate. The problem is these storytelling paradigms now are being subverted in an effort to make them more modern so um it's it's i think there's a difference here and i think the people it's it's not so much that i think there are there is i don't believe in gatekeeping because unless somebody's coming and taking your your physical media away or or pulling out your internet connection so you can't stream whatever you want to watch well then um there, what what if, if somebody tells you you're not a true fan, you can say, fuck off and walk away and watch whatever the hell you want to watch. You're under no obligation to be the kind of fan somebody else wants you to be. Um, but I do understand that it's just like, think about it. There are many of us, many of us imagination connoisseurs that I know, like myself being one, I've spent my life studying these things, literally. Uh, and And when somebody tells me that I should go back and read the classics... I literally just now got a um, an indication that I am uh, my presence is required tomorrow afternoon at a sound spotting session for episode twelve of the animated series that I've been working on. Now, as a grown man, it is my profession to work in entertainment where I am creating animated shows right now. And does that mean that I need to go back and read the classics? Would classics help me uh, sound spotting a or doing a, a sound effect spotting for a particular episode of animation? Would reading Gilgamesh or Shakespeare or Proust help me? No. You know what would help me? A steady diet of Batman the Animated Series. So we live in a different world. This idea that, oh... The- With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No The fact that our franchise in history bears out that we don't have to abandon childish things as we get older. They become just as relevant. You know, the central conceit of civil war, the the Tony Stark and um Steve Rogers, the rift between them, it's political, it's personal, it's ideological, and I think anybody that goes and sees that movie, I mean, let's say you're, I don't know, the great a great political theorist, I think when you sit down and if you take Civil War seriously, if you were interested in a superhero movie, you could come out and have a really compelling conversation with your colleague about the philosophical differences in both what Tony Stark and Steve Rogers wanted out of, of the situation they were in, the Sokovia Accords. I think there's something very valid there. And um, I don't think necessarily reading the classics is going to make you any better prepared to have those discussions. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, I don't know. But we live in a world now where it is the post-geek singularity and things have changed. But the idea of nostalgia, sure. What do thinking about our childhood, what is it, when we think about our own lives, we are the stars of our own story. And when you think about different plot points or you think about Act 1, where you used to be and maybe where you are now, maybe you're in the middle of Act 2, maybe your Act 3 is just starting, I think the reason we get nostalgia is because we, we, or we think about things in the past is because we're trying to contextualize our own lives and make sense of it all. I don't think it's that we, we oh, I wish, I wish I lived in a simpler time again. Um, no, I think you 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 wish that you lived in a time where you probably knew less than you did now. Maybe it was simpler, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, when we were younger, we didn't have much of a care in the world. And as you get older, you have lots of cares. And I think it's only natural. I don't necessarily think uh, being nostalgic necessarily is a bad thing. But I think wanting to have the same stories you saw when you were a kid is. And I don't think that's what fans want. I don't think that when, when we complain about our favorite uh, franchises, whatever they may be, it's because they're no longer, it's not that they were not delivering the goodness that they delivered to us when we were kids, it's that they're not as good as they were when we were kids. And even when I was a kid, like with the Bond franchise, I did not have rose-colored glasses. I knew that A View to a Kill was not a good movie. I knew that Diamonds Are Forever wasn't very good. I wasn't trying to defend them. I love the Bond franchise, but I wasn't staunchly defending a movie simply because it was a James Bond film because, hey, I wanted to watch a good James Bond film. So uh, I think, well, that's just yet another thing that I wanted to talk about. Now, here is another article that I was going to read, but I don't want to bore everybody. Um, But this was sort of interesting. This is a review of a book 
that was in Participations, the Journal of Audience and Reception Studies, Volume 11, Issue 2, November of 2014. I have never heard of this book. Lincoln Garrity, it's called Cult Collections, Nostalgia, Fandom, and Collecting Popular Culture. And let me just read a little bit about this review because I want to get this book, but I think this review uh, talks about it, and I think it's, it's, it's relevant. Fan studies since the work of Henry Jenkins, John Fisk, and Camille Bacon-Smith in the early 1990s has long focused on the producti- productivity of fans. Fans are textual poachers who actively assert their mastery over the mass-produced texts which provide the raw materials for their own cultural productions. This focus on textual productivity served to place fans above and beyond the stereotype of the lonely geek living in his parents' basement. But, as Lincoln Garrity rightly notes in the introduction to Cult Collectors, collecting has been an over has collecting has been overlooked in fan studies and is devalued as a fan practice because of its basis in consumption rather than production. Cult Collectors offers a reevaluation of the significance of fan practices which are born out of consumption and offers insight into fandom overlooked by other analysis. Given the popular media attention focused on comic conventions like San Diego Comic-Con and the broader awareness of fan cultures, the book is a timely analysis bringing together work on nostalgia, comic book fandom, and toy collecting. The book is comprised of four distinct sections, each focusing on different aspects of collecting and each offering a theoretical analysis followed by a case study of a specific fandom. Section 1, Stereotypes, examines the depiction of geeks and fans in popular culture. Bob Rehack, in his introduction to the Transformative Works and Cultures special issue on materiality and object-oriented fandom, acknowledges that approaching fandom through an explicitly materialist lens may at first seem redundant. Haven't fans always been defined for better or worse through their relationships to objects? Referring to the Saturday Night Live sketch on which William Shatner appears, exhorting fans to get a life... He notes that fans have always been framed as excessively devoted, commercially overinvested, and trivia-obsessed, and that that sketch's use of a convention space to denigrate the Star Trek fans' obsession with material goods associated with the show perpetuates the negative stereotypes connected with media fandom. These negative stereotypes provide the starting point for Lincoln Garrity's analysis of collecting cult media fandom and forms the basis for his argument that collecting is not simply a mode of passive consumption connected with the worst excesses of media fandom, but a richly productive means of connecting the fanish self to a specific text. He tracks the way in which depictions of fans and popular culture have changed from the Saturday Night Live sketch React refers to to the Big Bang Theory and explores the ways in which academic work on the representation of fans fail to separate the actions and practices of the nerd or geek, but none really separate the actions and practices of the nerd or geek from being a fan. This, followed by a case study on collecting Hollywood memorabilia, which interweaves work on nostalgia and effect with notions of identity and what it means to be ourselves. All I know is that I want to get this book. I'd never heard of this book until today, and I'm going to put this here so you can, if you're interested, read it. So there you go. Um, yeah. So basically, I... I I basically was a little defensive in reading a personal criticism of me that I wanted to come back and say, I think you're wrong. Uh, I think that 
one of the great things about living in this day and age is we've basically been able to turn our fandoms into professions. Some of us have. A lot of people who live in L.A. I know have done that very same thing. And I see nothing wrong with that. But I also understand that, look, that doesn't mean I don't want to be an adult, but it means that science fiction, fantasy, and horror in all of its myriad forms, all of this storytelling, all of these things, we have more stories than we've ever had before. And I have been lucky to have had a lifelong obsession with storytelling, both consuming stories and then telling stories of my own. And I think that, well, it's pretty great to live in this modern age and be a part of all of that. Even now, talking to you all, talking about storytelling to all of you and what it means and how much uh, it can matter. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a cool thing. Well, I think it's cool. I don't know if you all think it's cool. I do. I think it's cool. And uh, I think that's it's cool having a show like this to be able to discuss all of it. So what can I say? And that's what I wanted to chat about today. What do you think? Uh, let's see. The first, the first thing I can do here, just see what you think, is dip in to the old uh, letters. And um, there's a lot. This one comes from James Wallace. Uh, James Wallace says, Hey Rob, congratulations on Tango Shalom becoming an official collection, official selection in the Garden State Film Festival. A really fun film. May the film continue to get into more festivals and garner a larger audience. After watching a video on YouTube on some of the best episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I decided to watch the episode A Call to Arms. Now to give you a brief history on me as a Star Trek fan, I started watching the original show at age four with my mom when it was in syndication. Not long after that, Star Trek The Motion Picture was on HBO, and I would watch the film anytime it was on. Then I saw Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan a few times in the theater, and I love the film to this day, about as much as I did when I was four. Growing up, I was a fan of The Next Generation, but was a casual fan uh, the first two seasons. I couldn't really get into the show until the third season and watched it almost religiously. When Deep Space Nine was announced, I was kind of perturbed by the point of the show, not really a show about exploration, and at the time, Babylon 5 was going to be released. I would watch Deep Space Nine, but I wasn't really into the show until Worf showed up. I would watch the show off and on until it was over. Same thing went for Voyager. I wasn't as passionate about these shows as Next Gen. Same with Enterprise. I love First Contact. Doesn't really hold up for me now, but probably nostalgia more than anything. Insurrection was a fair film. Nemesis was so bad that I walked out of the theater wishing Next Gen had ended with all good things. I was irked about the idea of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek back in 2009. However, on first viewing, I loved the film. I saw it five times in the theater, but after Into Darkness reassessed my opinion of the first film, I loathed Into Darkness, despite being an acquaintance with one of the main cast members. He was the best part of the film. I was pissed at what they did with Khan. Later that summer, while working on a show, I overheard two young ladies saying they cried when Kirk died in Into Darkness. I couldn't help but approach and ask if they'd seen Wrath of Khan. When they replied no, I was really close to flipping a table over and doing a Pacino yell. That's the divide, though. New types of fans and filmmakers are revitalizing what we loved. You've heard it so many times. I was hopeful with Discovery and Picard, and those shows are terrible. I'm not a gatekeeper talking here, just someone that loves films and shows and also the industry, and seeing what's going on with these franchises is troubling. It's early in the morning, and I've watched 13 hours of Deep Space Nine. The show is not brilliant, but it's close. There are still issues that aren't really addressed. The music is overbearing at times, and the universe of Star Trek is sacrificed for the current show, like the whole war with the Dominion, 
Why is Cisco in the Defiant leading? Seriously, he's been in charge of a station. Where's Picard? Oh yeah, Picard is waiting to film Insurrection. That kind of takes me out of the show, yet the show even now is so invigorating that I'm giving it my full attention. From a call to arms to the scene where Ducat has experienced his personal tragedy, I was hooked again, appreciating the stories and loving the characters. 13 episodes, the amount of a season of Discovery, is 10 times better than current Trek. Worf and Dax's relationship works. The friendship between O'Brien and Bashir is also engrossing. The wedding of Worf and Dax. You love these characters and love watching the episode. There was real chemistry between those actors and the characters. It didn't feel forced like Worf and Deanna Troy. With the characters in current Trek, it's like being force-fed vegetables as a child. It's like the creators think if you don't love their characters, you're an asshole. Also, Dax was captain of the Defiant for a period of time, yet Discovery acts like they're the first <laughs> they're the first type of Star Trek show to have a woman as a captain. When Deep Space Nine and Voyager did, plus the captain in Star Trek Four, inclusion has always been in Star Trek, yet these new shows pat themselves on the back like they're getting a merit badge. So much works in DS9, and now I'll probably be watching six and seven over the next few days. Although, like next gen, it seems like DS9 really peaked at season six. I think season six of Deep Space Nine is the best season of modern Star Trek. The writers we have in the industry now, not all, but most, are spoiled. They couldn't hack it if they were writing for a 1990s Trek series. They were making 23 to 26 episodes a year, and they write 10 to 13, and those shows are train wrecks. I worked on one show where the writers couldn't even get into into place the 10 episodes they said they would have by the deadline date. As a result, the show I was on almost went over budget, and there were page one rewrites after the table reads. It's amazing how the writers of DS9 and TNG came up with episodes that can be watched and appreciated years later, whereas some of the shows in our revamped franchise don't hold a candle. Look at the talented writers that came out of Star Trek. Ronald D. Moore, he proved with the first season of Carnival and the whole run of Battlestar Galactica. It's probably a blessing in disguise he left Voyager after his term on DS9. Not only that, Moore's writers' rooms are full of great, differing voices and viewpoints. He doesn't agree with all of them. And that's great. That's life. Whereas it seems the current Trek writer's room is like a board cube full of assimilated thought. The sad thing is that DS9 didn't need virtue signaling to make a big deal about women characters kicking ass like Kira Norris. They just told a story. Good stories never get old, but new ideas that only amount to something that seems pulled by a focus group never age well. Instead, they just show the loose narrative threads. I really wish that Star Trek, Doctor Who, and even Bond just end already. We're spoiled enough as it is. We may not be getting new, better versions of our beloved franchises. Okay, the new versions are beloved to some, but we do have hours and hours of great content to revisit. Now the new content, it's just a cash grab for these new shows. Well, maybe not cash grab since the ratings not be through the roof. Let's call it an attention grab. Fans and writers of Trek bitched about Berman, but say what you will, he kept the ship right for the most part. Trek, even though it wasn't great toward the end of the 18-year run, kept the spirit of the franchise we love. Probably Berman was fatigued with Trek over time, and that's why Voyager and Enterprise seem like repeat viewings of previous shows. The industry is extremely risk-averse, rebooting almost anything, it seems. I think I'm done with all these revamped franchises. I gave up on Doctor Who. I'm done with Bond. After- Step into the world of power. Loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For no time to die. If they want to bring in Idris Elba, fine. But the Bond films have gone downhill for a while now, and I don't think changing the race of Bond will add anything new. That's like saying a, bond, a blonde James Bond will add something new. Oh, wait a minute. Well, at first it did, but Bond slowly descended into a serious version of the plot of Austin Powers. Blofeld was like a brother to Bond. Come on. Austin Powers did that in the third film. You want a black Bond? Go watch Tenet. I love John David Washington's portrayal in the film, plus I thought the film was great. I might be in the minority there. The Bond formula is watered-down vodka martini now. I don't need a new Bond film or Trek or whatever. Give me something new. Netflix is generating, inspiring new content for the imagination. Why can't the other studios figure it out? I mean, Netflix looks like it'll be the only one in the black here soon. Netflix keeps generating water-cooler content. I think our society's fast-food, instant gratification mentality affected corporate studios. They want the show or the film to be a hit right away. It takes time to build a following. Look at John Wick. Look at Ozark. Look at The Office. The show wasn't a huge hit on NBC, and now it's huge for Netflix or wherever it streams. Like you, Rob, I see potential in streamers. It's the Wild West in the industry right now, and we'll see what happens. But hopefully the studios keep rebooting everything, figure it out soon, or audiences will just move on. Well, James, what a great letter. And uh, as you can see, why I wanted to start off with this, because it goes right into what I was talking about. So thank you for that. Uh, let's see. David Kukol. Kukol? David Kukol? Um... This comes from David Kukul. C, it's K-O-U-K-O-L. Hello, Rob. I hope you're well. Your various comments over the past year inspired me to revisit an old science fiction property that I saw as a kid, but I had since rejected as a poor example of the genre. My opinion has now changed dramatically. Ooh, I like to hear that. That show is, of course, Space 1999. The first season is extraordinary. It has some bad episodes, but what series doesn't? The production values are amazing, and beyond that, the series does follow a unique path. The idea that some outside force is guiding the Alphans is intriguing, and it is a shame the second season was retooled, putting an end to that thread. The second season doesn't appeal to me, as the real entities in charge dumb things down considerably. I wonder what would have happened if the original premise had been allowed to continue into year two, and the themes from the first season were expanded upon. Space 1999 might have a more respected place in the pantheon of science fiction if it had a little more time to find its way. The series does have a fan base, from what I understand. It's smaller than those enjoyed by some franchises we hear about every day. A shame, really, as Space 1999 deserves a larger audience. On a brighter note, the latest Let's Get Physical Media episode was a treat. I particularly liked when Dieter challenged you to guess approximate the German titles for classic films. <laughs> Keep up the wonderful work. Regards, David. Well, David, what a nice letter. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan of the first season of Space 1999, and you're right. I mean, they brought in Fred Freiberger, who was brought in to uh, produce the third season of the original Star Trek, and they really, they dumbed it down. And, and like, I have to say, 
that I kind of really like the idea, whether it's God or whether it's just a very, very advanced alien force like we see in 2001, or or it's the unseen force protecting and moving Moonbase Alpha through the cosmos that we saw in Space 1999. I mean, I, I've always said um, in, in Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica, God is a character. He's unseen or it's un she's unseen, it's unseen. The God force, call it what you want, but you've got the angels, you've got head six and 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 head uh, Baltar, uh, Gaius. I mean, they're there, and so Kira is brought back. Uh, Kara Thrace is her her. She has a divine viper. She gets them to Earth. I mean, there's a lot of religion, and I love the idea, like with Space 1999, that there's a force out there watching over some incredibly, impossibly advanced alien civilization. You never really know, but. I've always um I've always liked that. Uh which I thought was very, very cool. Steven writes in, just Steven. Uh hey Rob, I enjoyed whining about movies the other night. I actually prefer the true uh, the remake of True Grit over the original, but mostly I do because of how much I enjoyed enjoyed Haley uh Steinfeld. I say it is my second favorite Cohen Brothers besides the Big Lebowski. The real reason I wrote this letter is because I would love to know what are some movies you want to be remade and movies that you don't want to be remade. I would love to see a remake of The Incredible Shrinking Man. I think that could be cool. The effects in it are still pretty good, and I welcome a modern update. I even like The Incredible Shrinking Woman, but as a guilty pleasure. I wouldn't also mind seeing a Grumpy Old Man remake with Tommy Lee Jones, but that's more of a joke. The movies I don't want to see remade are 2001 A Space Odyssey and Breakfast Club. I contend that 2001 is the most important science fiction film, and it's really a movie only Kubrick could have made. I agree with that. I'd rather see someone try and make their own John Hughes movie rather than remaking one of his films. Anyway, love to know your thoughts. Also, I know that you think that one day we may have the ability to measure a film's quality. I don't think I disagree with that. If they're a robot picking what scripts get used, then I say it's possible. Take care. <laughs> well, thanks for that letter. You know... I think the movies I, I, I don't want to see remade, you know, off the top of my head, movies like All That Jazz, Jaws, well, 2001, any of Kubrick's movies, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon. I mean, maybe you could remake Barry Lyndon if you go to the faculty book, you, you know, Mr. Make Peace. Um, I, I, I just, I would hate, you know, so much about storytelling is about the time that the stories were told. And I think some of our great classic literature, we, we've seen a lot of, there's a big revival on Victorian era stuff or stuff that happened more than 100 years ago. You know, there's a there's a book I would love um, to make, and it's it's right up it's right up there. I'm looking at it right now. If I could make, I mean, it's not really like Downton Abbey, but it's set during that particular period of time, period. There's a book called Impale Battalions, Impale Battalions. By Mr. Goddard, our man. Uh, I love that cover too. In Pale Battalions, uh, I, it's a book I I really really loved. I don't know if it'll ever get made. I don't know what that has to do with your question, but it was just something that that jumped out at me. I'm surprised that that somebody doesn't make a seven uh, episode series of In Pale Battalions. I would love to do it. I'd love to direct that, write and direct that. Actually, it was just a book I really really liked. Um, but yeah, I mean remaking things. All that jazz is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it was it was Bob Fosse ruminating about his own life. The main character was a thinly veiled version of him. Uh, I don't want to see that. I don't ever want to see a version of that <laughs> remade. It would be terrible. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, mostly the classics. Unless somebody has a way in. If you're going to remake something, make it really different. Like Cronenberg's The Fly. Or like John Carpenter's The Thing, like I was talking about the other day. Uh, but yeah, thanks for writing that in. That's a good letter. Uh, let's see. We've got... Um, mm, 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 mm. This one comes from The Bunk. The Bunk. Greetings, Rob. Second time writer, long time viewer. I'm writing this letter to you from the desk of my home office here on the east coast of Canada. It is currently minus 5 centigrade, though with the wind chill accounted for, the feels-like temperature is closer to minus 11 centigrade. The weather forecast, or is that is that Celsius? It's not centigrade, right? Oh, it is, you wrote centigrade, so it is centigrade. The weather forecast for tomorrow is informing us that a snowstorm, which will only be the second of the year thus far, is due to land sometime in the early hours overnight, but I digress. In actuality, I'm writing this letter with a number of things going on in my mind, and I hope by the end of this communique, they will have been able to that I will have been able to flesh out these thoughts and feelings at a minimum, and in a way that is somewhat coherent. You see, today is February 1st, and things are shaking up to make today an interesting one. First, the revolution of Main Street, or Reddit, versus Wall Street will be entering into its next stage of conflict when the markets open up this morning. This uprising, if you will, has been fascinating to watch, at the very least, providing a welcome distraction to my current Groundhog Day, or Groundhog Dog-like existence. And while I can neither confirm nor deny if I have a vested interest in this movement, I can with certainty state that it has been exciting to watch everything unfold and the potential lasting impacts that it could have on the global financial markets. In addition to this, and what has really sparked my ambition to write a letter to you, is due to David Lynch announcing on his YouTube yesterday that he will also be making some sort of announcement today, sometime in the morning, PST to be exact. Now, this is not the first time Mr. Lynch has made some sort of announcement, or announcement which turned out to be fairly inconsequential to most of the fans of his films and TV. I'm once again trying to temper today's announcement, as it could be anything from a new signature furniture line commissioned exclusively for Ikea, or a new album of noise-pop rockabilly tracks that he co-wrote with Miley Cyrus. Given Lynch's many hobbies and artistic passions, truly anything could be possible. And again, I stress, I'm really trying to temper my expectations here, but to quote Special Agent Dale Cooper from Lynch's first season of Twin Peaks, when two, se when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. I've always associated Lynch's work with that of challenging norms of the status quo, regardless of the medium he's working within. With the potential stock market revolution raging on and everyone jizzing themselves over WandaVision, I think now... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I know, I'm supposed to do that in my... I know. Sorry. Um, I think now would be the perfect time for another rebellion to emerge. One that is more dreamy and filled with wonder, and dare I say, original. Yes, I know, I said I was trying to keep my hopes in check, but I would be lying if I said that this atheist was not praying for a new Twin Peaks-related season, film, or spin-off of some type. By now, most people are aware of the impact that the first two seasons of Twin Peaks had on television, influencing many of the creators who would go on and reinvigorate modern television further and help usher in a new age of television. The influence of Twin Peaks has been seen and felt behind a number of diverse shows over the years, including Northern Exposure, The Sopranos, Lost, and the modern-day Twin Peaks homage that is Riverdale. Lynch and co-creator Mark Frost truly paved the way for how stories could be told via the boob tube medium and challenged audiences every step of the way. 
I still contend that the Twin Peaks Season 2 finale is the boldest, strangest, and most wondrous piece of television media that had ever been created. Remarkable given the fact that it aired on ABC in the early 90s during prime time. That was until Frost and Lynch reunited their partnership with the announcement of Twin Peaks The Return. Twin Peaks The Return, a.k.a. Season 3, aired on Showtime on May 21st, 2017, and in the age of prestige television, they once again delivered a much-needed shot of weird and wonder into the television medium. Bruh, episode 8, yo. But much like Lynch's follow-up prequel to those first two seasons with his film Fire Walk With Me, expectations were subverted and fans were once again challenged. Things got weird straight out of the gate, and very little time was spent in the town of Twin Peaks in those first few hours as we visit new locales such as New York City, Las Vegas, Buckhorn, South Dakota. Many new characters are introduced, and the few familiar faces we see are shown all too brief. Lynch took his time to not only reopen the world of Twin Peaks, but simultaneously added even more to its terrifying and beautiful world. After each episode, I would call my brother, and we'd discuss what we just watched and try and make sense of the various scenes and where we thought the story was going. I would listen to multiple weekly recaps via numerous podcasts and YouTube videos as everyone was in the same boat, trying to make sense of what we were watching and the trail of clues that were left behind. Then Part 8 happened, where Lynch did what I thought was impossible and bested his previous television summit that was the Season 2 finale. And then the return was wrapped up in a two-part hour finale that brought somewhat of a conclusion with some plot lines and then only to leave things once again on a cliffhanger. For me, and unfortunately the show's small but dedicated audience, I felt that I had just witnessed another watershed moment in television. But while The Return was critically acclaimed during its run in 2017, it never really appeared to have much of an impact on the mainstream populace or culture after its conclusion. Sure, many Hollywood creatives like Damon Lindelof praised the season, but the proof was in the pudding. We were still living in a world of superhero films and studios pushing every agenda other than that of creativity. Sure, there have been some bright spots along the way, A few episodes of Watchmen and The Outsider come to mind, but overall it appeared that The Return would just end up being a niche television event. Fast forward to 2020 and a word of of a new innovative approach at Marvel was on the way. I applaud Marvel for not only changing its traditional filmmaking approach with WandaVision, but by also making its initial series on the Disney Plus platform. I'm also happy that it's being very well received by fans of the MCU. That said, I do have to admit that I've been biting my tongue in fear of not upsetting anyone, with my thoughts on the show. In the first trailer, the fingerprints of the return appeared to me were all over it. Wanda appeared trapped in some sort of alternate reality, and there was likely only a matter of time before she woke up. Watching the first handful of episodes seemed to confirm this, and while the show obviously has its own course trajectory, it's evident, at least to me, that Twin Peaks, specifically the return, was an influence in the making of this show. What I do find perplexing, however, is the widespread acclaim that WandaVision has been receiving. Specifically, I do not feel that WandaVision is that visionary as many of those in the mainstream media and YouTube land are making it out to be. Even your colleague John Campy has jumped on the clickbait train by naming his episode for today, February 1st, with the title, How WandaVision is Changing the TV Industry. I have to say I'm a bit perplexed at these reactions. Have these people not seen any of Lynch's work? I also have to say, Rob, that as the Viceroy of Verisimilitude within the post-geek singularity, I would be lying if I said as a regular viewer that the lack of discussion regarding Lynch on your channel is a bit odd. For me, Lynch is one, if not our greatest living artist, and no one else creating visual arts today is able to create a world that is truly unique and extraordinary like Lynch can. In many ways, I feel Lynch and Frost are matched only in this respect by George Lucas when he was at the peak of his powers. 
Anyway, this letter's gotten away from me and turned into a lot longer than I initially planned. Perhaps you could devote an upcoming episode to Lynch versus treading the same old ground that is Star Trek Discovery and Picard, the the landfill. Regardless, I would love to hear your thoughts on these topics and appreciate you taking the time to read this. Hugs and kisses on all of your pink parts. The bunk. P.S. I would absolutely kill for a special Elizabeth's recap of Twin Peaks. Just a thought. Oh, my God. That would take a lot longer than one one hour long episode. Well, the bunk. Uh, I always like kisses on my pink parts, so thanks for that. What a great letter. Um, you know what can I say? I, I I mean, Lynch has been confounding our expectations since Eraserhead. Uh, it, it was interesting. It was interesting to think that David Lynch was was approached to direct Return of the Jedi. How different of a world we might have lived in. But no, I mean. Look, I'm a I'm a pretty big Lynch fan. Um, you know, whether it's Lost Highway, whether it's Wild at Heart, whether it's Blue Velvet, um, uh, Mulholland Drive, Mulholland Drive. Oh, I love that movie. Uh, there's there's just a lot going on uh, with David Lynch's work, and it's you know he doesn't he he. I think we did watch The Elephant Man on Eliza Views, and and that's the most traditional of his narratives. And even with Twin Peaks, what was so interesting about Twin Peaks was he subverted, he took a a common trope on television, the murder mystery, and completely subverted it and turned it into something that was so far beyond what it was initially supposed to be. And it was, it was confounding and, and amazing. And, and, um, I don't, I don't think I love Lynch obviously as much as you do, because, you know, there are things like Inland Empire that, and Lost Highway to a certain extent that I think are, um, you know, not as good as I would like of that, liked them to have been. But then you go and look at something like The Straight Story or Episode 8 of of The Return, and it's, I, I mean, you wouldn't have thought Lynch would have made The Straight Story, but then upon closer examination, of course he would have, because that's a very Lynchian story. Let's, I'm just going to jump on this lawnmower and keep going. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a pretty Lynchian thing. Um, but I and episode eight, I, I said that in the Glorious Trexpert's hundred and one greatest episodes of television, science fiction television, I said episode eight. One of my picks was episode eight of Twin Peaks the Return because uh that was just staggering and, and the implications are amazing. And uh, you know, I, I I kind of wish we did have more groundbreaking television, but I think the the fact that Twin Peaks the Return was, like you said, unfortunately kind of dismissed. Um, because it was even more confounding than the original Twin Peaks. It certainly was amazing to watch, though. But definitely, it would be interesting to show a few uh, David Lynch movies. It is Viewer's Choice Month, after all. We're watching Miller's Crossing on uh, tomorrow night. And I think a David Lynch movie would be fine. It would be very interesting to hear what Elizabeth, Elizabeth thought. I don't think she's ever seen Blue Velvet. And I have most of Lynch's oeuvre right over there on Blu-ray. and 4K. I don't know if I have any 4K Lynch. Oh, no. I have Elephant Man in 4K. Um, I don't think I have anything else though, but I have mostly his entire filmography on Blu-ray. So that would definitely be something to look into. Um, let's see. I'm going to see what you guys, uh, are saying. What are you saying? I, I honestly, I have no idea to be honest. No clue. Let's find out. Let's go see. Let's make this a little bigger. So, um, you can, I, I had a, uh, Yesterday I had a, I had a, I had an update of this uh, software that I use and it 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 completely you have to set up these shows and uh, it was 
it was not pretty. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> guess I'm not going to make it, <laughs> make it yesterday, but I've made it today. So here we go. Um, let's see what everybody has to say here. We shall see. Uh, I'm not going to, it's not, you're going to have to bear with me here. It doesn't look pretty. I don't have it normally. I don't have it, it, uh, squared away like I normally do. So I apologize for that, but let's go back and see what people have to say. Um, Chloe, Chloe says, given today's technologies using the platform, YouTube, the theory of six degrees of separation has never been more true. You're possibly no more than six degrees of separation from someone famous within today's society. I, I agree, you know, it, I, I, but I'll tell you something. I think we're a lot closer to one another than we might imagine. I mean, there's people that you're not going to get a hold of, but if you have a certain amount of credibility and you can pretty much get to mostly anybody really depends. I mean, it really depends who you want to get and why you want to get them. Um, Willow says, from my understanding, the Hannibal series got canceled because of low ratings. Was that due to pirating, as some have suggested, or does a show like that just have trouble getting an audience? I'm not a big horror fan, but I love the series. Look, I just think Hannibal was not for everyone. I mean, Hannibal is one of my favorite television shows ever, and I certainly think it's one of the most, one of the greatest horror television shows in the history of TV. Uh, but I think ratings could have been, been part of it. I mean... And maybe piracy played a bit uh, of that, but I just couldn't believe that show was on NBC and the way it was made and and how it was financed might have played a part a little bit. But it was definitely a challenging show. I think more people have discovered it since it's been on Netflix, and hopefully they'll do a fourth season because I just I love the characters. I love the and I read all of Thomas Harris's books. I'd obviously seen the movies, but the reinvention of those mythos was just spot on. Loved it. Um, Chloe says, with cursed movies like Antrim and Fury of the Demon actually turning out to be just a mockumentary made up, in your opinion, do you think an actual cursed movie does exist? To me, The Omen comes the closest with all that happened before and after filming. I, you know, I don't I don't believe in curses and things like that. It's just coincidence. Um, you know, you could say Poltergeist, too. I, I, I honestly think it's, it's just a coincidence. Um... I think that people that work on movies and the way movies are made and the the the, the lifestyle of the people in front of and behind behind the camera tend to bring in certain elements that other professions don't bring in. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I don't necessarily think movies are are really cursed. Roger Haynes sends in a super chat. I want to thank you for that. Roger is very mysterious. Roger Haynes uh, sends in super chats and then. He doesn't say anything. He just observes from the distance. But I want to thank you for supporting the channel, Roger. Uh, Alan Smithy is here. Have you been directing, Alan? Have you been directing again? Uh, hi, RMB. I met you once on Roka's show. I love the original Ghostbusters, and I felt the remake didn't understand that the horror elements should be taken seriously. The fun was being scared and then immediately laughing at the thing that scared you. I agree. You know what? I agree with that, too. And the fact is, as again... The characters took the the threat seriously, so you were like you're with them, and and I I agree. And with with the new Ghostbusters, you couldn't. It was all a goof. It was all a goof, and the and the women. I didn't believe those characters. I didn't believe those people existed. I believe that they were screenwriting people. I don't like screenwritten people. 
I know all movies are screenwritten. I know there's screenwriter behind every great script, but I don't like when the people appear to be screenwritten. I don't like movie people. I like it when the characters in movies feel real and not like they're constructs made specifically for that particular film. I don't like that. You know, that's one of the reasons I love a movie like, say, Tootsie. It feels like the characters, when you meet the characters in Tootsie, they're not in that movie yet, if that makes any sense. Like, the movie Tootsie, the story that Tootsie's telling, when you when you first start Tootsie and you're watching it, you're seeing a character study of Michael Dorsey, actor. Actor Michael Dorsey, played by Dustin Hoffman. You're getting a sense of his life and what it's what's happening, and he feels real, and his friends feel real, and... You know, why you wouldn't hook up with Terry Gard back then, I don't know. But she's uh, she's great. She's delightful in the movie, too. And Bill Murray is terrific. And then the situation that develops, then it kind of turns more into a movie movie. But it's earned that because you already believe in Michael Dorsey and his milieu and his world in New York City. And those are my favorite kind of movies. Alan Smithy says, The Ghostbusters are also supposed to look like losers who sort of luck out when the ghosts turn out to be real. The new female Ghostbusters look like they're competent and smart, which misses the point of the main joke. Women should be busting ghosts, though. <laughs> look, I agree. I have no problem with women Ghostbusters. I think it's fine. But like you said, I think it's really, um, really, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. Um, Rob Altus sends in a super chat and says, nostalgia generally encompasses the best of your memories and experiences. I would agree with that. I think that's true. Um, yeah. Uh, Mexican Iron Man. Hello, Mexican Iron Man. Uh, thank you for supporting the channel, sir. I think I never realized how much I missed good writers with creative innovations. Quality is not possible. So long as mediocrity is the entertainment industry's state of the art, but you know, I, I here's the thing. But but there is so much good stuff being made. You know, for every Breaking Bad, and we complain, but but Breaking Bad and um, and uh, Better Call Saul, tremendous shows. Queen's Gambit, uh, amazing. There's so many serialized. I think The Boys is amazing for what it is, and. I mean, despite that season two might have had some shortcomings, but the season, the first season of The Boys is great. I, I really like the third season of Ozark. There's a lot of great TV being written, but it's just that the, I think there's so much of these franchise properties are, at least are wildly uneven. Um, and that's and that's the bummer. Like Doctor Who. Like, I love the idea of a female Doctor Who, but why not write a female Doctor Who? Why not why make it great? Make it great. Uh, I would love that. You know, and, and what I think is really interesting is like in WandaVision, they're embracing the idea of Wanda's femininity, the idea of motherhood, the idea of creating a domestic, a tranquil domestic environment. Uh, the, those traditional roles, that that's something that she's seeking in her psychosis or whatever the hell's going on with her, I thought was really refreshing because... You know, only a woman can give birth, and they went back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I mean the Marvel Comics Universe, where she does give birth to these two kids, but what does that mean? What is that going to mean to her going forward? And uh, it's very interesting, and I find it fascinating that they're doing that. Uh, Loyal Fan 99 is a member, Brian Borden's a member, The Richards a member, Jack Wallace is a member, Call Me Ishmael is a member, DKG Custom became a member, Kinky Sphincter became a member, Nerdy by Nature... Darth Plato, G Money, G Money, G Money, Money became a member. Well, thanks to everyone. Thanks for becoming members. I appreciate that. Anthony Gonzalez is here and says, 
A letter writer questions Sisko being a leader for Starfleet in the Dominion War. There were certainly admirals above him, but it does make sense as he is the one that was there and personally convinced Gowron to rekindle the alliance with the Klingons. I agree with you, Anthony. Totally. And then Anthony goes on to say, you know what chaps my ass? The other day my boss told me to my face that the cars are one-hit wonders. <laughs> I was steaming. The cars are not one-hit wonders. I mean, come on. You know, moving in stereo. Candy O is a great record. Uh, moving in stereo that they used in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's, that wasn't necessarily a hit, uh, but not as like one of their big hits. But the cars are not one-hit wonders. Um. Bob Kowal says, I enjoyed Mayor Mike's media diet episode one. It reminded me about how much buzz Brian's song caused when it first aired. Not because of the interfacial best, interfacial, interracial best friends or anything like that. It was because everybody bawled when they watched it. Oh, they did. For those of you who don't know, the Burnett work dropped a new show today. It is a new pre-recorded weekly show that is put on by my partner, Mike Bodden, who is actually the mayor of Riverdale, Iowa, and he wanted to just call it Media Diet. And I said, bruh, come on, this is the Burnett work. you got to have a, a, a name that announces to the world that we're supposed to be having fun and we don't take ourselves too seriously. So I said he's got to call it Mayor Mike's Media Diet. And he, took, he looked back at seven great football movies uh, that are uh, in, in with the Super Bowl coming up, seven great uh, football films that you can watch either in uh, anticipation of the Super Bowl or after the Super Bowl. And he's going to be doing that once a week by looking at things that he feels are worth your attention. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? <sighs> Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I thought it was really cool for a first debut show. I thought he did a great job. I thought it was very entertaining. I liked his winsome, winning personality. And he is, in fact, an actual mayor of a small American town. How many YouTube channels can boast that? So kudos to Mike. I'm glad, Bob, that you liked the show. I encourage everyone to check it out. Smash that like button. Subscribe to Mike. We have to encourage him because I don't want him to flee in terror from the channel. Um, <laughs> 200 Watt Studio says, what is the name of that book? Impale Italians? Uh, was that you? Did you look in the live chat? <laughs> I know, crazy, right? Uh, Alexander Wilson says it's the end of an era. Jeff Bezos is stepping down as CEO of Amazon. He is. Your feelings on his legacy? Amazon did just over 125 billion in business in a uh, quarter four of 2020. Look, you know what? Once again, a man came from the Pacific Northwest, started something amazing. I mean, 25 years ago, really, Amazon didn't exist, or it was in. He had one office. 
I mean, to me, the the thing you can now we make fun of Amazon now, but it's only existed for a quarter century, and it started out because he wanted to sell books online with the idea that well, maybe I can sell something better. Uh, it, it 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 I think Amazon is amazing. It it was disruptive and it was crazy and it was it was uh, and what I love Amazon. I've loved it. I jumped early on uh, on the Amazon bandwagon. I think one of the more fun things I did last year was when. I went back and looked in my Amazon purchasing history from the time I first placed an order at Amazon or the time they first started archiving them and being able to see that. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought uh, it's, um, yeah, I it, it, it uh, look, he changed the world. He changed the world. And stepping down, I can, I can see that. I mean, I think Jeff Bezos, he wants to concentrate on other things like going into space. I mean, once you've done Amazon, uh, once you've conquered that frontier, he's got many other frontiers to conquer. Um, I uh, I think that's amazing. So yeah, I, I but it, it, he's he, he people will be talking about him for centuries probably, and and he's he's not done. Who knows where he, what he's going to do? Uh, Silver Fox sends in a super chat and says, "Mr. Rob, Prime Minister of Physical Media, besides Amazon, where to buy?" And what are your thoughts on Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer? Is it society today? I like Snowpiercer. I mean, I don't know if it's entirely society today. I think it's a little oversimplified. I think society is a little bit more, it's a little different. But but the class war, the class struggle is certainly alive and well in Snowpiercer, and it's got a lot of truth in it. Uh, that's why I think it's, I like Snowpiercer a lot. I've never read the original graphic novel. I think it's manga that it's based on, but I, I do like Snowpiercer a lot. I think it's really, really good. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, Richard says, um, Jean uh, Anua, I, I, I don't even know how to pronounce her last name, Jean, his, Jean, uh, fiction gives life its form. That's a great quote. I love that quote. And I agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, fiction does give life its form. It's how we contextualize, you know, what did Alfred Hitchcock say? Uh, drama is life with all the dull bits cut out. I think that we need to tell stories to contextualize our own lives. I think that's, I like that. I think it's a good thing. Stub McShave says, thoughts on Jeff Bezos stepping down as chief executive for Amazon. I think, look, he, he did what he needed to do. He's going to move on and Blue Origin. He, he's going to be in a space race with Elon Musk and uh, Richard Branson. And I think, I think it's all good. It's going to benefit us in the long run. I mean, we need to, we need to start expanding our horizons. Um, we do. Um, Michael Preston sends in a super chat and says, Rob, I've discovered the problem. You were part of the winter soldier program. Unfortunately, instead of eliminating your target, you ran about discovery. <laughs> yeah. They unfreeze me. I, I I'm put back into cryostasis every day. <laughs> um, Alexander Wilson says, I'm confused about that first letter. Is it saying that because your past middle age is the reason you don't like new Star Trek? If that if that's it, I think that's ridiculous. Basically, that's what he was saying. Uh, I think that that when somebody says, I, I don't think anybody, nobody tells stories necessarily directed at, at teenagers to 35-year-olds. Not anymore. Because, because nowadays, look, the media, people that have been steeped in media and home video and, and before... You know, up until they had home video and uh, up until our cable channels expanded, you you only had, we had very little way to see media and we didn't get very much of it. But with the advent of cable television and home entertainment and now streaming, you know, people are steeped in pop culture in ways they never were 
before 30 or 40 years ago. So it, it, the, the idea has changed. And, you know, some of the great television that we've watched and some of the great movies have become the great literature of our day. And I think it's, it's, um, it, it's a shame that people would, would uh, poo-poo that. But, I mean, I understand. You know, there's a lot of people that are just taking, taking shots at me personally, and that's okay. But, I mean, as somebody who works in the industry, I'm not going to sit there and go, well, I'm not going to work on an animated show because I shouldn't be as a middle-aged man doing something like that, which is sort of strange. Um, <laughs> Danny Boy became a member. 200 Watt Studio sends in a super chat and says, no, seriously, what is the name of the book? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, 200 Watt Studio. I closed those, I closed those chats. Um, I apologize. <laughs> Hang on, let me see if I can find it in my, um, um, is it the Ghostbusters Platonic? Let me see. Uh, the name of the book, I've, I've, I've called it up here. Uh, <laughs> um, is this what we're talking about? The, the Bitches Ain't Gonna Hunt No Ghosts, Totemic Nostalgia, Toxic Fandom, and the Ghostbusters Platonic? Uh, I don't know the name of the book, but, um. <laughs> uh it's there. Um Trav Hall Pooperbelly says uh Trav Hall Pooperbelly says what were your most obscure Amazon purchases? Mine would have to be tie-dye colored dollies. Um I don't know. You know, I don't I don't know what my most obscure uh Amazon purchases would be. I don't know if I've ever bought anything obscure, really. Because I always buy action figure stuff, and yeah, I um, I don't know. Uh, not I don't think I've really bought anything that obscure on Amazon. It's always books, CDs, video games, and toys or something. Uh, let's see. Richard says, did you see that Watchmen writer attack Ted Cruz on Twitter today? No. Ted Cruz remarked that Thanos and Vite were crazy left-wing environmentalists, which is true. But the writer thought he was talking about her canceled show. That was a comic, man. <laughs> Ted Cruz said Thanos and Adrian Veidt were crazy left-wing environmentalists. <laughs> That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess, you know, Thanos, before he snapped his fingers, he was eliminating. He was culling half of a population to do the same thing. <laughs> at least Ted Cruz is an imagination connoisseur. <laughs> He's able to represent both DC and Marvel effectively. Good for Ted. <laughs> My favorite thing is Craig Mazin was Ted Cruz's roommate in college. And if you haven't read Ted Cruz and uh, Ted Cruz being gone after by Craig Mazin, you haven't lived. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to look that up. Alexander Wilson says, I was listening to Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life album, and it's a music, musical masterpiece. It is a musical masterpiece. Ranked fourth by Rolling Stone on the greatest of all time album lists. Oh my God, what are your top five albums of all time? <laughs> Alexander, dude. <laughs> um, I, I can't even begin to start to answer that question. I can tell you uh, uh, Miles Davis' Kind of Blue is in my top five albums of all time. Um, but that's probably, that's probably, uh, 
and and I don't know any number of Prince's albums. There's a couple I would put in there, but man, I'd have to really think about that. There there's so many great 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 records. Uh, I I'd have to think. That's something I'd have to really. I couldn't I couldn't pull that one out without thinking about it. I'm doing some research actually too. Uh, Evan Newman says I'm also a Lynch fan. And I loved the new Twin Peaks. It was engrossing yet challenging, and I hear new theories about it every year. Was it a dream? Was it time distortion? Are Audrey's scenes just a dream that actress Sherilyn Fenn is having? It's fun to contemplate. I'll tell you one thing. I've dreamed a lot about actress Sherilyn Fenn. Hubba hubba. Um, uh, 200 Watt Studio says, no, the book you want to see as a series. Oh, um, Anvil of Stars? Anvil of Stars, is that what I was... Oh, oh, hang on. Let me go back and see what uh, you said. Impale Italians? <laughs> Anvil of Stars? <laughs> yes, um, but unfortunately, David Brin's people uh, are 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 problematic. I mean, Greg, Greg Bear's people are problematic. Did I say David Brin? Greg Bear. Um, I always mix them up because they're up on my shelf up there. Uh, it's, uh, Greg Bear, Anvil of Stars. Uh, Eric Gant says, what's with this cars are one hit wonders business? How about just what I needed moving in stereo? My best friend's girl, let's go magic. You might think, come on now, Devo, on the other hand, they are one hit wonders. Oh, come on, Devo. Come on, Eric. <laughs> uh, Richard says, what happened to the expanse, bruh? Last episode tonight. I don't know, man. I thought season five, it started out so good, and then it just got mired in this in this Anaros drummer. There's, there's all this stuff that is going on in the galaxy, and it's like, I mean, I know they're following the books, but I, I think that they've really sidelined. Like Holden? Holden isn't even a, he, he's basically a bit player in his own show. And look, the, as much as I love Drummer and I love what's happening with Amos on, I, I like the Amos storyline on Earth because that was that was interesting. But uh, again, it 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 just seems like we got half a season and it's over. There's one more episode and it kind of a uh, it's kind of a bummer. Um, so yeah, Richard, it's a bummer. Richard goes on to say, Clarice not getting good reviews. Can Brian Fuller get a restraining order on Kurtzman now? Man, I have to tell you. Uh. If I was Brian Fuller and I had my name on Star Trek Discovery as co-creator of Discovery when Kurtzman basically came in and usurped that title, and then after making one of the finest horror television shows ever and having a real problem getting the rights to Silence of the Lambs and have Alex Kurtzman come in to do a Clarice series, and I, I would be very upset. I'd be very upset. And, but I have to say, proof's in the pudding, man. And the reviews for Clarice that they're getting have to be, um, have to be richly deserved. I mean, I'm sure Brian's liking that a lot. Um, Richard says, "Good show. Have a good rest of your night." Oh well, thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for the support for the channel. I very much appreciate it. Uh, let's see. I'll jump back into letters now. Let's see. I've got. You know, I have a letter from. I've been saving it. But why, why, why save that when I don't have to? Ladies and gentlemen, Willow Yang is here. Willow Yang, our beloved Willow Yang. 
a woman who, uh, again, I wish if she would come on camera, I'd do a show. I would do a Willow Yang show. I would love to have a, uh, I would call it Willow Talk, and I would just talk to her about all of these things she writes in. It'd be a great show. Maybe we should pressure her. Can we peer pressure Willow Yang to like do a show? Don't you want to have a Willow Talk show? We'll do it once a week, Willow. We won't even do it live. We'll just do it. It'll be fun. We'll have a great time. Uh, greetings, Rob. An interesting discussion surrounding Star Trek is the speculation over what over what socioeconomic system the Federation has. Is the Federation communist, as some have suggested? In order to address this, we will first need to establish a definition for communism. I find that the vast majority of people these days don't actually know what the term means and are often either conflating it with totalitarianism and or authoritarianism or are simply using it as an ad hominem attack against those they don't like. Communism, to borrow an excerpt from Wikipedia, is a philosophical, social, political, and economic ideology and movement whose ultimate goal is the establishment of a communist society, namely a socioeconomic order structured upon the ideas of common ownership of the means of production and the absence of social classes, money, and the state. I guess something like this might resemble the utopia or dystopia, depending on your point of view, described in John Lennon's Imagine. Uh, where there are no more possessions, no more countries, and everyone's holding hands singing Kumbaya. Are the Soviet Union, China, or North Korea actually communist under this definition? Nope. As far as I'm aware, there's never been an instance of true communism being successfully implemented throughout human history. So, is the Federation communist? Well, I do have to start out by saying that I've only watched the original series, The Next Generation, most of Deep Space Nine, and bits of Voyager thus far, and there's a fair amount of information that's still missing along with various inconsistencies and contradictions throughout the franchise. Furthermore, most of the information we've been provided are centered on humans, and it's unclear whether all members of the Federation adhere to the same system. Both TNG and DS9 has explicitly stated on several occasions that money has been eliminated on Earth. One such instance occurred in TNG's Season 1 finale, The Neutral Zone. In that episode, the crew came across three humans from the 20th century that had been placed in cryogenic suspension. One of them, upon being reawakened, asked Picard about the fortune he'd acquired prior to being frozen, to which the latter responded, This is the 24th century. Material needs no longer exist. Then there's a season six premiere, the second half of Time's Arrow, where Troy has a conversation with Samuel Clemens, who's better known, of course, by his pen name Mark Twain. Clemens. So there's a privileged few who serve on these ships, living in luxury and wanting for nothing. But what about everyone else? What about the poor? You ignore them. Troy says, Poverty was eliminated on Earth long ago, and a lot of other things disappeared with it. Hopelessness, despair, cruelty. Clemens, Young lady, I come from a time when men achieve power and wealth by standing on the backs of the poor, where prejudice and intolerance are commonplace and power is an end unto itself. You're telling me that isn't how it is anymore? Troy says, That's right. With advanced technology, most notably the replicators, essential items such as food, clothing, and medicine are readily available to everyone in the population, although it is unclear how the energy used to generate these goods is being supplied. In other words, they have been added to the list of public goods resources that are both non-excludable and non-rivalrous, or as some prefer to put it, they've been socialized. 
Furthermore, it is evident that Star Trek has an unfavorable view of unbridled capitalism, as evidenced by the generally negative depiction of Ferengi culture, which is presented as being regressive and antithetical to 24th century human values. However, while the Federation does have some elements that resemble communism, I do not think that it can be considered a truly communist society. There is still private property. Robert Picard has his vineyard. Joseph Sisko has his restaurant. And of course, there's definitely a state government in place. If the Federation isn't communist, what economic system does it have? My speculation, because again, there isn't enough information to know for certain, is that it most closely resembles a futuristic version of the social democracies seen in some northern European nations. Now, many people, including a prominent U.S. senator, whose recent fashion choices have turned them into an internet meme, often seem to mix social democracy with democratic socialism. In simple terms, social democracy advocates for a regulated and ethical form of capitalism, whereas democratic socialism advocates for the abolishment of capitalism altogether. In the post-scarcity world of the Federation, poverty has been eliminated. There is a baseline of living standards, with healthcare, education, food, clothing, and probably all other essential goods and services having been decommodified. However, private property and businesses do still exist, and it's conceivable that non-essential luxury items and services, like, say, artisanal wine or real non-replicator food, are still being treated as commodities, and there is a reward for individual effort and innovation. How is individuality affected in a society like this? If, individ in, if individuality is expressed predominantly through social class and consumerism, then from that perspective it would be diminished in a world where economic inequality has been greatly reduced. However, as we can see in the Star Trek universe, one's material wealth is certainly not the only component of individuality. Indeed, it can be argued that there are many people in our current society that are being held back from pursuing their interests and passions due to economic pressures. And if you were to remove that obstacle, personal freedom will be greatly increased. Miles O'Brien revealed at one point that his father actually wanted him to pursue a musical career rather than engineering. What upside-down alternate universe are we in where parents are pressuring their children to go into the arts instead of the sciences because they are no longer concerned about them ending up homeless? Rather than being limited to what is most economical and safe, people in a post-scarcity society are allowed to study what they're actually interested in and get jobs that they're actually passionate about. Of course, that does not mean an equality of outcomes. There's clearly going to be people who are better at something than others due to the natural diversity that exists in the population. Certainly not everyone is going to command a starship or become president of the Federation. However, everyone has their basic needs taken care of and nobody is being held back by fear or lack of opportunity. I will conclude with some musings on the idea of a society where humans have lost the desire for wealth accumulation. How can a system like this function? It has been argued that competition and greed are good motivators for people to strive and innovate. So what motivates Joseph Sisko to continue on running his restaurant if he doesn't need to work to make a living? Is it because he simply enjoys doing it? What motivates McCoy or Beverly Crusher or Bashir to become doctors if it isn't for the handsome wages? Is it because they want to help others? Because they want to partake in new scientific discoveries that will better humanity? Why do people want to get into Starfleet? Is it just the desire to be part of great, a, a great expedition to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before? As Picard stated in The Neutral Zone, the challenge is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself. Or as Data told Law and the Offspring, I have asked myself many times as I have struggled to be more human, until I realized it is the struggle itself that is most important. We must strive to be more than we are, Lal. It does not matter that we will never reach our ultimate goal. The effort yields its own rewards. 
Of course, there's the counter-argument that we are inherently lazy and everyone will just sit on their buttocks all day and do nothing if they're being handed freebies. Thus, whether you believe a society like this can function or not likely depends on your beliefs about human nature. Are we selfish or are we cooperative? Are we greedy or are we, altru- or are we altruistic? Are we lazy or do we crave purpose? And from that perspective, Star Trek is a strong believer in humanity. Live long and prosper, Willow. <laughs> Come on, Willow. Man, I love these letters. You just knock these out of the park. Just boom, boom, boom. You are a home run hitter with a great batting average, my dear. Let me tell you. Um, I think you bring up really a, a really interesting question. You know, in a post-scarcity society where no one has to worry about food, for instance, uh, or, or shelter, or any of any of those things that I mean, most of human most of human history, if you really think about it, is has been in the pursuit of sustenance, like how where you you need to make money to eat every day, and you need to make money to to live in a house. Well, if you can just replicate all these things, and you know, I don't know how they would allocate land ownership, giving people plots of land, and you know, you can do what you want to them. They probably you know you can not 3d print but literally materialize a house <laughs> they probably have they probably have house transporters that specifically you could model your house pick it out in virtual space and hit a button and it would materialize where it's supposed to be uh, or something like that you could but I, I think that that's truly it i mean once once the idea of having to provide for yourself uh then you can decide, like, what are you going to do? And when the when the universe is open to you, and there's so many places to go and things to do and people to see and 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 meet, I think our our ways of behavior. I mean, think about it. We didn't have social media 20 years ago. You didn't have smartphones. Smartphones have been around since what 2007. iPhones came out. Smartphones came out in 2007, where suddenly we can take pictures and communicate the way we have. They've been around for what 14 years, and they've completely changed society. Well, what happens when you have transporter technology and and you live in a post-scarcity society and how things are going to change? And what if you were born into a world where what was prized was education, learning for its own sake, figuring out what you wanted to do? I think Ben Sisko's dad has his restaurant because he enjoys it. You know, cooking, being a great cook and cooking his food, family traditions, he's an artist. And the fact that Picard's family had a vineyard um, you know, it was already there. It's not like somebody could come and take their land away. They had that vineyard for a very, very long time. And I think if the family business was to, to, to make wine, then people would, they would value, suddenly it would be valuable to, to drink great wine for its own sake. And I, I really think that that's how it would work. Um, but it, the way we think now, the way we act, we actually think about things would be different. And, um, but it's interesting because they've they've never really dealt with that directly. It's always been alluded to, but we don't really know. A great letter, Willow. I want to thank you for that one. Uh, very, very thought-provoking. Uh, this is why I love this show. I never get enough of doing this because everybody is very interesting. Eric Gant says, one of two. Uh, well, actually, you, you haven't. I don't think you've typed the second part yet, so I'm going to read Jared. Jared said, Hey, Rob, Expanse question. Why does Mario have no tattoos? Why does he look like he just came off a stage with Wendy and Lisa in the Revolution? <laughs> he was a fanatic with a master plan. I, I said that he looks like he's like the Marco Inaros, that, uh, that he looks like the disco godfather. But 
oh my god, he looks like Dez from the Revolution. He totally does. <laughs> um. He was a fanatic with a master plan at the end of last season. Now he just seems wanting to get even with Naomi. I, I agree. I, I think this whole family drama is enough. Uh, enough. I'm I'm tired of it. They should have played out that in one episode. And it, it's it's become this domestic family drama and there's all this there's all this strife. What's going on in the rest of the galaxy? What's going on back at the station? You know, what what where does everybody else go with Fred Johnson dead? What's happening with the OPA? We haven't, uh, what is happening? We don't know. Um, but you know, I, I mean, it is kind of a function of the books, but they've really, I think they've really, I don't know why they, they, they suddenly are, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on. And, and like you said, what plan did he have? He like bombed earth. Now he's running around just wanting to gloat all the time. And he he's making everything personal and he's, his mind like why is his focus seem to be his son it's it's weird i mean it's a strange it's it's a strange thing i've been greatly disappointed in the last three episodes and tonight is the last one last one of the season peaches on earth and naomi's situation with alex and bobby and holden serving as the framework the biggest deviation seems to be drummer and her storyline both seem to be combinations of different characters they are and events Oh, and the bit connected to the ending cliffhanger. Um, they seem to have avoided that altogether so far. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to happen, and it's been sort of, sort of disappointing, which is a bummer. But on that note, ladies and gentlemen, kind souls, gentle beings from across these, the twenty-eight known galaxies, I am going to call this episode of Observations number six eleven over. And uh, I want to thank all of you. I want to thank my moderating staff. First of all, Mike Bodden, who now has his own show on the Burnett Network, Mayor Mike's Media Diet. And in true typical YouTube form, he had his show demonetized because of clips from the blind side, uh, of which, I mean, he's he's giving a referral and telling people to watch movies. It's completely a review commentary. There was no reason to demonetize it at all. It actually exemplifies perfectly what fair use is. But hey, there you go. Um, but watch it anyway. Mayor Mike's Media Diet on the Burnett Network right now. Seven football movies you should know about before Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I want to thank The Richard. I want to thank Justin Toner. I want to thank Joshua Levesque. I want to thank Greg Smith. I want to thank all my moderating staff for being here today and for being great. Please go find The Richard on the Post Geek Singularity Facebook page. You can also go to the Whining About Movies Facebook page, the Fully Articulated Facebook page, and the Let's Get Physical Media Facebook page. Uh, The Richard, you know, I was watching Jimi Hendrix last night on on the Post Geek Singularity Facebook page, performing at Woodstock. Uh, It was was great. (laughs) You never know what's what's going on there, but I... I was watching that, so so go over there and say hello and give them a hard time. If you want to send me letters, please go to the burnetwork.net website and contact us there. And uh, yeah, tomorrow I will be on the John Campy show in the morning. Then I'm on Az's channel, Heel vs. Babyface, where we're doing another epic toy stream with I with uh, Nerdrotic uh, and Jay Jay. I, I don't know who else, I forget who else is on there, uh, but that should be fun. Showing our toys, boys with toys, we continue on showing them. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gentle beings across these 28 known galaxies, I say a cheers to you. And remember, 
Every person you meet has a story to tell you have yet to hear, and all you have to do is listen. And remember, tomorrow, uh, Whining About Movies is our first viewer's choice film, the Coen Brothers' masterful gangster movie, Miller's Crossing. So join us for that. And on that note, I say, have a better day.